Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent U.S. Open podcast, sponsored by Stats Insider. And we begin with a word from our sponsor. You might be used to checking Stats Insider for pre-match predictions, world rankings by surface, tournament simulators, and other cool tennis tools. But perhaps the coolest of them all is the brand new live in-play match probabilities. Using Stats Insider's custom ball-by-ball algorithms, you can watch as Stats Insider comes alive with dynamic probabilities of every player winning their current match as it's being played. Live, in-play match probabilities now on Stats Insider throughout the U.S. Open and for all major ATP and WTA tournaments. Head to www.statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au. And so, with that word from our generous sponsors at Stats Insider, based in Australia, we invite once again uh, Stats Insider columnist, a, a man of many talents. He can write about any sport, but here he, we're, he's here to talk about tennis with us. We welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, James Rose Warren. Hi, James. Welcome. Hey, Matt. Nice to be here. So thanks for coming back. We did this rodeo at Wimbledon, so we're happy to do it again <laughs> for the U.S. Open. And uh, I want to point out for our listeners that James wrote a terrific piece, The Ten Outsiders Who Could Win the Women's U.S. Open. And, and you could say in a certain sense that everyone's an outsider uh, at the Women's U.S. Open just because it's so wide open and because of that stat that we're going to keep mentioning uh, on tennis Twitter and on this podcast and, and on other tennis podcasts that 12 different women have made major semifinals this year. So we're all wondering if it's going to be 16 for 16 or if we're finally going to see a uh, second major semifinal for one of these uh, 12 women. Maybe it's Ash Barty. Maybe it's Simona Hallett. Will someone make a second major semifinal? In 2019. So, with that as the jumping-off point, James, uh, what what are your foremost observations, both on the outsiders and the elites, uh, for the U.S. Open and in terms of your analysis and the homework that you've been doing for Stats Insider? Yeah, as you said, the potential Matt to have a fourth Grand Slam with four different women once again making the semifinals is just absolutely insane. Along with the idea that you know ten of the last sixteen. Grand slams that have been up for grabs have been won by different women. Um, so we've got, you know, four quarters, which are incredibly open. It's a brutal for draw for anybody. You, you know, usually we we assess these draws. They come out and you say, oh, this will be a nice, easy path for a particular contender. But it is brutal this season uh, throughout the year. And it seems to have all coalesced into this U.S. Open being absolute mayhem as well. Over the four quarters, everybody's got a hard run. You, one of the you think more gentle um, paths might be Petra Kvitova in the second quarter, yet she's going in with a, you know, another injury and her even particip- participation is, is a suspect at the moment. Um, Ash Barty's got a, you know, Australia's Ash Barty grand slam winner, number one in the world for a, for a brief moment, drawn in with Serena Williams and Angelique Kerber in the fourth, fourth quarter as well, which is yeah, really, really tough reigning champion Osaka in, in the first quarter. In there with Sabalenka and Kiki Burtons and Belinda Bencic as well, who is someone absolutely to watch out for, but again, coming in with an injury. So it's, I've never seen a draw like it, Matt. I don't know about yourself, but yeah, absolute, absolute mayhem. 
Well, I just want to disclose that on our, the, our uh, staff predictions for Tennis with an Accent at uh, TennisAccent.com, you know, we do uh, predictions for the men's and women's major tournaments uh, you know, every year. And uh, I, I was just up front with our women's picks. I said, I Ooh. have no clue. Who's going to make the semifinals? <laughs> I have no clue. Who's going to be the runner-up? I have no clue. Who's going to win the title? I have no clue. Because, look, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have any feel for what's going to happen at this tournament. So is there but anything? How exciting is that as well? Like, that's just absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. So, I mean, for, in this in this total uncertainty, I mean, is there any granular granule uh, yeah. of analysis that you've come up with, which makes you think, well, you know, it's it's fairly unpredictable, but this might be the insight. This might be the statistic. This might be the factor which tips the balance for someone and uh, and tips it the other way, the wrong way for somebody else. So this is where Stats Insider comes in with it at a really good point with our unique, you know, custom custom court rankings. And particularly here, we're dealing with with the hard court hard court rankings. And if you remember with Wimbledon, there was so much sort of because we don't have a heaps of data on the grass. Hard court's different. We've got a heap of data. We've got you know poured so much into our computers and stuff like that. So we're seeing someone like you know. It's very youth-driven, this particular tournament, as I wrote up in my sort of, you know, 10 outsiders who can win. Straight away, um, Andreescu, number three in our rankings overall on hard court for a teenager as well, having already won in Indian Wells, having already run in Toronto, she's already put together a huge resume and can come in feeling really confident. And for someone who's been injured a fair bit this year, She's probably coming in at 100% form, which isn't something we can say for the likes of, as we said, Benchich or Kvitova. And even with form, Naomi Osaka is not exactly flying either. Someone else in that similar realm is, you know, uh, Sophia Kennan, ranked on a heart courts uh, from Stats Insider's perspective as a number six um, in the world. Uh, and she's also got, so I was about to say, Matt, she's also got a, a decent draw, but that goes out the window when we're talking about this US, US Open. But she's in there in the third section with um, Madison Keys and Pliskova, who's got a lot of doubts herself at Grand Slam level. Svitolina as well has still yet to break through to a semi final at Grand Slam level. So it sets up quite nicely for Sophia Kennan as well. One I really like in that particular area is Yastremska. Um, in that same section, she's number 18 overall in our hardcourt rankings, really putting together a, a great body of work, probably slipping under the radar as a teenager because of what Andreescu has achieved this year. But um, I think really primed. Round of 16, I think, last year at the US Open. So, um, yeah, ready to sort of make a, another mark this year. Um and one other player who I think we should absolutely be looking out for is Arena Sabalenka, uh, 19 in the world on a hard courts, in that first section of the draw with Osaka. She's also in round of 16 last year as as a teenager, was a 20-year-old. So she's she's also ready to make her mark as well. But, yeah, it's just an, an incredibly exciting, incredibly diverse field of, of contenders. And that's not even mentioning some of the... Um, the established greats, be it Serena, be it Azarenka, Sharapova, Kvitova as well. So unbelievably exciting draw. Uh, in, anything that the, the models are telling you about which player is more likely to go on the big run? 
Um, well, we release our futures model for this tournament in the next 24 hours. So we're still punching in our numbers at the moment to dr- to actually spit out what's going to happen at this tournament. So though, okay. while not available left, we can still rest on, because that's very draw dependent. A draw was released a couple of days ago, so we're still ironing out that. But in terms of, so we're leaning at the moment just on our hard court rankings, um, which will obviously be filtered into our forecasting, which I absolutely encourage everybody to get the Stats Insider and, and keep looking at that gets updated daily and you can continue to see how um, the draw is breaking down. So it's exciting stuff. I think it's pretty great that you're not making a rush to judgment. You take the time to input the data and sort through the numbers. That That's what we like in a sponsor here at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, <laughs> totally, a, a, totally. A, sports, a, sports, a sports analytics company that takes its time. We, we, we like that. We like that a lot. All oh, right. Any, any, yeah. So any wor- any general thoughts on the men? I mean, we all know about the big three. So <laughs> what what? Let me, let me make this very specific because, you know, Dominic Please team do. has a virus. So it's hard to think that he ha- he's going to have the strength and, and the wherewithal to, to get to get to the semifinals and perhaps cause problems. Uh, you know, that's just very unfortunate, kind of like Kiki Burton's at the at Rowan Garros, also felled by an illness. So it seems as though the main non-big three player that everyone's talking about, and rightly so, is Danil Medvedev. What is Stats Insider's hardcore numbers and, and overall analytics saying right now about Danil Medvedev? Well, Obviously, Medvedev's hardcore season has been absolutely fantastic, um, culminating in his Masters win in Cincinnati, where he obviously beat Djokovic in the final. Ranked number four overall, overall in the hard courts, five overall independent of surface. Um, but as you'd know, <laughs> as we all get excited about Medvedev, we all think, wow, this is some another contender thrown in with Djokovic into the first quarter of the draw. And <laughs> he couldn't have asked for a worse draw in terms of Someone who is wanting to break through, that's where you obviously don't want to be, is Djokovic hunting his 18th Grand Slam. But but Matt, coming back to what you were saying before with Dominic Team, if as as sort of flabbergasted and frustrating as men's tennis is at the moment, it's in that very section, I think, the third section, um, where where the most intrigue lies in this draw. Obviously, Team's in there. Obviously, Sitsipas is in there as well, trying to break through to his second semifinal of the year. And it's also home to um, Felix Auger Aliasame, who who's been a revelation in 2019. And wait for it, Australia's Nick Kyrgios as well is in there as well. Um, with believe it or not, a decent draw, and someone who our rankings quite like. He's ranked number seven on a hard court, and deservedly so in terms of a recent winner in Washington. He's won on the U.S. hard courts before in Atlanta, I think last year. So. Yet he's obviously yet to have that breakthrough at a Grand Slam. I don't know how many people are pinning their hopes on it, but he's in there with a chance. And in, in, a, in, a, in an open, open section, which is not something we usually get to say about these Grand Slam draws. I mean, uh, Batisto Gutz in there as well, and Morphe. Uh, Edmund is ready to do some damage. Shapopolov is, is, is in that section. That's an open section, which is something we, we, we never get to say. So that's exciting. Yeah, well, and it's worth pointing out that, you know, Stats Insider is an Australian company and it's not favoring Nick Kyrgios because of an Australian bias. It's just because, I, you know, from our previous conversation, James, during uh, Wimbledon, we t- you know, you explained very helpfully 
that your models run on volume, volume of results. Yes. You know, the more yes. results you can put into the hopper, you know, the, the more robust rankings you can get. And so, you know, that would that would reward a player like Kyrgios who can pile up a couple 500 titles on hard courts, ATP 500 championships that will get the ranking up. So it's not like some Australian home baked chicanery. It's just volume of results across the, the, the whole hard court season. So I wanted to mention that for listeners who might think, oh, Australian company valuing Kyrgios. What's going on here? Well, that so that's what's going on. So I want to explain that. Uh, so anything about the big three uh, from your models, from your research that you think is worth noting before uh, the U.S. Open? Sure. Rafa Nadal is the one that stands right out. Everybody's it's, Nadal's synonymous with clay court, you know, what is it, a 12-time winner of the French Open now. Yet something that's probably not always thought of, he's, he's actually number one on our hard court ranking. Um, and he's number one overall. Uh, in the world, independent of surface, and he's also drawn, being number two in the world, completely away from Novak Djokovic, linked in as well with that other, I mean, he's in his own quarter, there was Verev and Kachanov and Schwartzman, but should he get, be able to get through that, he'll also get the winner of that very open third quarter. So Nadal's path to another US Open final is is as good as Novak Djokovic is in terms of Djokovic is linked up there with, as we said, Medvedev, but also Federer potentially waiting in a semi-final. And, and we know how the last time they met, it wasn't a walk in the park for either. So, um, yeah, Nadal would be the one that really stands out in that respect um, from a hard court rate ranking perspective. Definitely. Well, hey, any, any outlet that vouches for Rafa's hard court credentials, because so <laughs> many other like people that. are are so glad to pigeonhole him or are so quick to diminish That's his hardcore cool. legacy. Hey, if you're, if you're vouching for Rafa's hardcore credentials, again, that's a real notch in your belt um, for you, James, and also Stats Insider as a whole. So the more I hear about Stats Insider, the more I listen to what you're, you're saying, the more I'm glad that Stats Insider is the sponsor of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. So James, uh, promote anything else that you have going on at Stats Insider across the full range of sports. I mean, your Australian listeners sure. would probably want to know about what's happening in Australian rules football, but uh, perhaps for a North American audience, if there's anything going on that you feel uh, you'd like to share about what Stats Insider is doing. Well, we are in the most unbelievably crazy, beautiful period of the year in terms of we have college, as you'd know, college football just starting up yesterday and we're doing match pages and future forecasting with 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 that particular sport nfl starting at the end of next week australian time um thursday night game your time obviously we're just about to start afl finals in australian rules football which is really exciting and um i was just about to say bulldogs making the finals which is, which is wonderful <laughs> um nrl finals and rugby league starts in a couple of their final start in a couple of weeks they've still got a couple of regular season games to go and we're also really big this year as we always are into european soccer so we're doing intense um uh, study into the english premier league this year as well as la liga so we're very excited about those two competitions um with projections available, futures forecasting as well at Stats Insider. So that's that's something to be very excited about. And then before you know it, as you'd know, Matt, college basketball and NBA will be around the corner just off the back of that. So this is a really beautiful time of the year. But definitely do also check out Stats Insider. We're rolling out sort of these, uh, well, these in-depth 
divisional previews as well regarding the NFL, as well as some other content to look out for, such breakout stars and MVP potential players. So a lot, a lot happening. It's, it's, it's a busy but really exciting time for sports lovers and definitely for us at Stats Insider. And you're a really big part of it, James. And we thank you for coming on to our podcast. And, you know, the next time you and I talk is very likely going to be at the Australian Open. So that will be your home yeah. major tournament, Stats Insider's home tournament. Tennis with an accent is really going to be excited about what Stats Insider is doing for the Absolutely. 2020 Australian Open. And that's that's regardless of whether um, you're sponsoring our podcast or not. We're, we're genuinely going to be excited about what you do being able to be on site uh, in Melbourne, covering that tournament uh, close up. That's going to be really neat. So, James, thank you for coming back to our podcast after joining us at Wimbledon uh, for uh, going over the hard court numbers, Stats Insider's models. And, of course, we, we want to emphasize Stats Insider, the home of the t- U.S. Open Tournament Simulator, but now the, the new feature, the live in-match probabilities as the match goes along and is being played. James Rose Warren. On Twitter at James R O K E E W A R N E. Do follow him, everybody. Thanks for joining the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Pleasure, Matt. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Official tennis world rankings can only tell us so much which is why the predictive analytics and data experts from Australia, Stats Insider, custom-built their own tennis world ranking system, separate and independent of the official ranks, filterable by surface. We think they're better than the official rankings, and here's why. The official rankings, which are updated monthly, take into account the player's basic wins and losses and how far they advance in each tournament, with larger tournaments worth more ranking points than some of the smaller ones. Here's where the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings are different. Stats Insider World Rankings aren't just based on how many matches a player has won or lost. Stats Insider's rankings also take into account who each player's opponent was in each of those matches, plus the surface the match was played on to determine how many points are allocated to or removed from the player's ranking. This allows players to rise or fall on the rankings not simply based on their win-loss record, but also accounting for who they defeated or were defeated by and on what type of surface. You can actually filter the men's and women's rankings pages by court type, allowing a better understanding of which players are performing well on the different surfaces. Right now, prior to the U.S. Open, the WTA has Bianca Andreescu seated number 15 for the tournament. Stats Insider has the Canadian ranked 7th overall and number 3 in the world on hard courts behind only the great Serena Williams and Ash Barty. The best thing, these rankings are updated daily to keep you completely up to date. Check out the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings at statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au.
Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib welcoming you to the show and I have the pleasure of uh, hosting former world number one in doubles and winner of uh, three major double titles, uh, Mark Knowles, a very familiar voice. Uh, thank you, Mark, for doing this. I know you're a busy man. You're working in a tournament right now as we currently speak. Uh, thanks for making time for us. Oh, great to be on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, I mean, you are definitely one of the voices that uh, you know fans like myself follow and learn a lot. So let me just jump right uh, into the mix of things. So as a former player, which of the two C's are the easy transition for a player? Coaching or commentary or both? <laughs> I think uh, commentary is the easier transition. Um, coaching can be a challenge for sure. Um, you know, commentary has been an easy transition for me. I really enjoy it just because I felt like while I was a player, I was fairly analytical. I was aware of not only what was going on on my side of the court, but also what was going on on the other side of the court. So, um, you know, it's something that I think comes fairly easy to me as far as um, breaking down the tennis and trying to kind of um, translate it for the audience for what actually is going on out there. So that's been pretty nice. Uh, you know, as far as coaching, I really enjoy coaching just because I, I think I have a wealth of knowledge that I can pass on. Um, you know, things that I did well, some faults that I made throughout my career. Um, but I, I think coaching is just an interesting dynamic just because of the, you know, the travel demands that it, it, it um, requires. And, you know, there, there's a lot of other things that go into coaching, too, as far as, you know, relationships with players and so forth. But, um, you know, they're, they're both nice transitions, but I've really enjoyed the commentary. Okay, so let's uh, elaborate this conversation with the commentary. And uh, most of us have uh, heard you call out matches for tennis channels. Your analysis is pretty spot on. Uh, what's your style? I mean, you think uh, in this day and age, you think uh, you are there just to add to what the picture is? Uh, are you also uh, keeping in mind that tennis channel does attract uh, a lot of uh, diehard, you know, knowledgeable fans while, say, to an ESPN or NBC uh, they're getting, uh, you know, more sports fans. So what is your approach? Uh, who are you catering to? Are you catering to both or are you, is there a select approach when you call matches? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think you're spot on there where, you know, Tennis Channel has really become, per se, the voice of tennis since it's, it's following tennis year round. Um, the other big networks are, you know, covering some of the big events, but a little bit more in and out. So I, th I think it's important to understand... Um, kind of the educational level of your audience. But, you know, I'd say that my approach generally has been, you know, just to kind of cover all audiences. I think that it's it's not fair to compartmentalize as you're um, talking on the match per se. You never know who's watching. Um, I like to try to just call it as I see it. Um, you know, there, there are times when I'll dip in and be a little educational or be more from a coaching standpoint or be more from a player standpoint. Um, it varies, but I've also felt um, from the very beginning that I, I've kind of, I've kind of leaned on the side of maybe a little less talk. Um, I, I find that, you know, obviously somebody who's watched tennis my entire life, I, I think it's important to let the the play kind of dictate the story, unless you really need to interject and and kind of educate the audience and and maybe fill them in on something that's happening that you really think that there's no way that they could pick up on it per se. Um, that's where you can really dip into your experience as a player. And, you know, having been in a lot of situations, I think sometimes um, 
us as former players see things that maybe the general fan or the general audience would not see in a match that's going on, whether it be strategically, whether it be mentally, whether it be physically, you know, all those different facets um, become very important in the story. So, um, you know, and then obviously I've always been, I'd say I'm more player friendly than, than anything. Um, you know, having been a player, um, I know that there's a lot more to the story than it looks. You know, sometimes you see a certain player maybe not playing well or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think a lot of people forget that there's just a lot that goes on for a tennis player, whether it be travel, whether it be relationships, whether it be, you know, hotel rooms. There's just a lot uh, when you consider how long the season is. It, I think it requires a lot from the players and it's very hard to be consistent uh, week in, week out. And uh, while you have worn this hat now quite successfully, uh, are there any elements that you walked away that you learned while doing commentary because you came from a player's perspective and you were, I'm sure, a fan yourself. You watched many matches. So what has the booth taught someone like you who really had a lot to offer? Is there, uh, Do you view things differently? I mean, is this even a legit question? I don't know. I mean, just felt like asking this whenever someone comes here. Yeah, it's actually an interesting question. It's funny because I was on air yesterday covering uh, the Winston-Salem Open for Tennis Channel, and I actually remarked that I wish there was an opportunity to me, for me to have been a commentator before an actual professional because you learn so much. You know, you see so much from when you from our vantage point, um, you know, and that's what I try to caution myself from when I'm in the commentary booth. It, it looks so much easier from the outside. And, um, you know, you pick up on so many things. Um, you know, I, I see some of the kind of the faults that I had, um, especially in my singles career at the start that, boy, if I could have seen it from this lens first, um, I think it would have really helped me. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting from that standpoint. I, I think similar to all sports, you know, everything looks a lot easier from the sidelines. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I've just, I've learned, I've really learned the, you know, I feel like the perfect way to go about it. And it's almost like I said, if, if I had the chance to play again, I feel like I would be even, even better player. Hmm. Okay, so that's pretty interesting what you just said about your singles play. That was something I wanted to touch upon. You had a pretty decent singles career as well. You broke the top 100, uh, which sometimes, you know, in this star-studded age of, you know, the race for slams and everything, we don't realize, like, everyone who's touched the top 100, top 200 is a phenomenal tennis player. I mean, you're talking about the very select few in the planet. So with all the information and all the data analysis that's available, when you look back, are there any things that you could have done differently to enhance your singles game, or are you pretty content when you look back? Uh, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I got to be honest. I feel like I underachieved on the singles court. So, um, you know, I was fortunate, I think, to resolve um, some of the things that were maybe holding me back. And, um, you know, I think that allowed for me to have a very successful doubles career and, and get to the top of the mountain on the doubles side. But, you know, I had some big wins in singles, as you mentioned, top 100. But, you know, I feel that I, I definitely um, I didn't fulfill my talent on that side. And, you know, I have a pretty good reason why I didn't, um, you know, and that's where I say I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to a lot of the players just knowing the difficulties that you come across, um, you know, I, I think I was labeled a pretty talented player, pretty strong physically and so forth. But I, I think mentally I really held myself back in the singles game. It took me a long time to not be so tough on myself and, um, 
you know, it, a lot of those things have to do with pressures from, you know, where, you know, I came from uh, a very, um, you know, my, my background was probably different than most coming from a very small country with not many uh, amenities and so forth. So, you know, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. I mean, all players have their own reasons for pressure and, and how they um, are able to kind of get, you know, get past the pressures and, and free themselves up. And I think for me, I put a lot of pressure on myself and it, it probably stagnated um, my progress a little bit in singles. And, you know, when I finally figured out and, and had the true belief in singles, unfortunately for me, that's when injury crept in. I had pretty major injury in my back where I um, fractured the seventh rib and, and I actually broke it. It wasn't like a hairline fracture. And, you know, that kept me out for over 12 months or so. And I was never able to really get back inside the top 100 to where I believed I could, you know, move up the rankings to, you know, whether it be top 60, top 50 and, and they're on. And I think that's where, you know, I learned the number one thing for players coming up is you have to believe in yourself, you know, no, regardless of what other, whether it be coaches, parents, um, family, you know, believing in you and telling you, if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't believe in your abilities, it's going to be very hard for you to fulfill your goals. And, um, you know, and like I said, part of that could be, you know, I came from a very small country, Bahamas, not rich tennis nation. Uh, you know, you feel like you're going up against the world, but, um, you know, it's not a matter. There's no excuses for anyone. As I said, it's, I feel personally, yes, I did fall short, uh, singles wise. Did I still have a very good singles career? Yes, I did in the overall scheme of things, but, you know, as most players, I had high expectations for myself. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to um, kind of uh, achieve a lot of success in doubles. And, um, you know, that that helps for sure. Um, but like I said, I, I would be happy with a do-over. I, I think I, I learned a lot of things throughout oh, my long career that, that I would do differently, differently for sure. sure. Absolutely. You know, that's just very poignant because, you know, we all evolve. And, you know, uh, Mark knows today, definitely knows a lot more about the game than Mark knows like a decade ago. So let me just bring doubles in. Uh, I'll ask this question. It's talked about endless, the singles frame, like when Federer came or when Sampras was playing, the ball's being hit differently, conditions have changed. So let me ask you from the doubles perspective, when you were on the tour not too long ago, how has the doubles game changed when you see these guys battling it out on the tour today? What are the nuances that someone like me who claims to follow tennis 46 weeks a year uh, what, yeah, what can I learn it's from changed, that? It's changed mightily. Um, you know, you know when I first came on tour, um, you know, if there was any player that tried to serve and stay back, we basically didn't really allow him in the locker room. <laughs> I remember, I remember one of the first players we ever saw serve and stay back was a great player from Spain named Jordi Arese, and uh, you know it was just so foreign. Uh, you know, it was more conventional doubles for most of. Um, the early parts of my career, serve and volley, when you think about the great teams like the Woodies and so forth, you think back to McEnroe Fleming, you know, it's about serving and volleying, using your strengths at the net. But uh, that game has really changed. You know, now it's a lot more commonplace for the players to serve and stay back. And, um, you know, we saw it probably last year highlighted the most with Jack Sock's success. He's one of the best doubles players in the world, has tremendous hands. Uh, but he has a really good first serve and he has a humongous forehand that, you know, he backs up that serve with. Uh, you know, I think back to some of the successful teams that did that. I think about Gonzalez, Masu, um, those types of teams where they hit, you know, a good heavy first serve and stay back and punish you with the first hit from the back of the court. Um, you know, I, I still think that winning at the net is the way to win in doubles. However, 
you know, with the power, with the strings um, that has evolved in the game, it's become more possible to serve and stay back. And, you know, we're seeing that a lot. So I, I think the game of doubles has changed tremendously. And, you know, if you look at the Bryan brothers, someone, a team that's played really through both of those generations as far as, you know, against the Woodies, the Knowles Nesters, the Bupati Pazes, and then now is playing against um, the generation that has, you know, Mark Lopez, for example, serving and staying back, Jack Sox serving and staying back. These types of players, they've done extremely well and they've had to adapt their games um, where sometimes they may have to serve and stay back or play a different formation uh, to confront uh, an opposition that stays back. Hmm, well said. So let me ask you another question, which may be very basic, but I've noticed uh, the trend, like the coaching carousel. Uh, talked to Rajiv Ram uh, a couple of times, and a lot of times players, you know, change partners after a year or a year and a half. Do uh, you think that uh, frequency has also changed compared to your playing days, or that's always been the same? Because we only focus on the marquee teams, like your association with Nestor and then Pupari. But, you know, overall, you think, uh, has the partnership overall, the dynamic overall change in the tour, like, guys are okay doing short-term partnerships okay every season let's renew something new yeah i think that's changed slightly um I, I think part of that reason you'd have to credit to the brian brothers because of their sustained success it seemed like players all of a sudden started switching a lot um trying to kind of dethrone them from uh the top of the mountain and i and i think also with the with the uh, addition of you know, the singles ranking now, more singles guys allowed to play the doubles with their singles ranking, um, you know, has also caused some of the doubles guys that are maybe not as not ranked as high to kind of move around. And, and even towards the top, I think one of the only teams that's really played together for a couple of years outside of the Bryans now might be um, Roger and Takao. They may be the longest tenured team outside of the Bryans, say, in the last four or five years. Um, you know, you see Jamie Murray split up a couple times. Um, Continent Piers have been playing together for a couple years. Kubat Mello. Um, but I, I think maybe that's changed a little bit. You know, when I think back to, um, you know, the Elting Harhus, the Woodies, uh, myself and Nestor, uh, Connell and Galbraith, uh, it seemed like those teams were together a lot longer. Um, so I, I think that's shifted. And, and maybe that could just also be personality. You know, I mean, our world is shifting, right? It's, it's, I want results now and uh, a couple weeks with no results. And then all of a sudden guys are starting to look around, see if the grass is greener on the other side. Mm, absolutely. Anyway, uh, no conversation, I think in my mind would be uh, complete if we don't bring uh, Dan Nestor and your partnership. So how do you look back at that period? You know, you, ha you guys had quite a success and uh, what are some of the takeaways 12 years removed from their partnership? Yeah, it was pretty, pretty awesome. awesome obviously, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, in our first uh, partnership together, Dan and I didn't play very much doubles at the start because, you know, as you touched on earlier, both of us were singles players. You know, we started out on tour trying to get as high as we could in the singles rankings. And, you know, we were, uh, Dan, I think, got up to about 56 in the world or something like that. It could be off a couple. But, you know, so we were always between 50 and 120 in the world. So sometimes we wouldn't be allowed We'd be playing qualies and singles because of our ranking, so we wouldn't play doubles. Um, so we missed out on a ton of events, you know, our first, I don't know, probably five or six years playing together. But we had a lot of success in the events that we played. And, you know, it was by chance that we came together. We were both entered in a singles event in Bogota, Colombia. I think that was back in 1995, possibly. Um, and I, I asked him to play doubles. And 
we played doubles there, um, you know, but we were there to play singles and we ended up winning the tournament. Um, then our next tournament, we didn't play again until the uh, Australian Open the following year because we were just playing singles and we made the finals there in our first Grand Slam together. So, you know, it was one of those things where it just came together so nicely. We were uh, similar people born on the same day, which was weird. I'm a year older. Uh, his middle name is Mark. He's lefty. I'm righty. You know, our our styles kind of complement each other well. He had a terrific serve. I was pretty good at the net. Um, you know, and we were both kind of had. I, I thought it was important at the time. I don't know how important it is today, but you know, we we had similar goals as far as, you know, we we were still just playing singles. We didn't practice any doubles at all. Never did a doubles drill. Nothing like that. So. It was kind of funny. And then, you know, our second partnership together, when we got back together, we were focusing just on doubles. And, you know, so it's really kind of two different um, sections of our careers together. And, you know, the second time when we were together, that's when we really got on a roll. We were winning a lot, a lot of, of tournaments, tournaments and, and challenging in a lot of majors. majors. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's nothing, nothing but obviously great things. things. Uh, we, we had, had a great run and, uh, you know, we, we enjoyed, enjoyed a lot of success. Of success. Absolutely. And then uh, you partnered with Mahesh Bhupari. So how was, uh, I'm sure there's a big difference playing with a lefty and playing with a righty. So what kind of an adjustment is needed? Is it something that at that level you make it very quickly? or uh, you know, is and Mah Mahesh is such a great player. He had so much success as well, to be honest. The transition was pretty easy. Uh, you know, Mahesh is a great professional. And uh, like you said, obviously, um, the obvious differences was that he wasn't left-handed, but uh, Mahesh had a great serve and he knew the game of doubles extremely well, uh, was a confident player. And, you know, we were fortunate because we meshed together pretty well. Um, I think we only played two years. We won a couple of Masters events. We made the finals of a couple of slams. You know, I think we might have finished top two or three both years we played together. Um, you know, so it was a lot of fun. Obviously, it was different, uh, especially when, you know, you think Knowles Nestor and then Bupati Pays kind of at the early stages of our career, we were, you know, pretty good rivals. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, you're kind of joining forces, uh, taking some of the knowledge that you were kind of trying to um, trying to figure out when you played against him. And now all of a sudden combining that knowledge. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun. Mahesh is a, a, another great guy and very intelligent guy as well. So, you know, I was fortunate to find another really good partner. Are you surprised to see Leander Pace still appearing in a lot of draws across the world? I mean, of course, the ranking is not on his side, but he's been having some success with Benoit Pair, and then he's he's been pairing with uh, different partners. Yeah, I mean, surprise would probably be a bit of an understatement. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny. I showed up here at Winston-Salem, and I saw he and Jonathan Ehrlich in the draw, another good friend of mine who, you know, you think back to the, the tandem of Ehrlich and Ram, who I played against a number of times, uh, great team and I almost had to check the year at the top of the drawer to make sure we're, we are actually in 2019 <laughs> because you know it's pretty amazing that um, Leander's still out there trying to play um, but you know hey all athletes you know there's there's no uh, there's no book that tells you when to retire or when you have to retire and you know obviously I think all players are different um, you know Leander obviously still enjoys the thrill of competition even though he's not able to attain the heights that he once was um you know he still finds a lot of enjoyment in tennis i assume um and, and that's what's important you know it's it's not easy to retire from tennis it's it's a pretty when you've kind of tasted the success that um someone like leander has and some of the other players it's tough to walk away from because 
you know, you're, you're probably going to achieve your, your greatest highs during your career when you think about, you know, being number one in the world, winning grand slams, winning tournaments. Um, it's tough to duplicate those types of highs once you retire. So, um, you know, no surprise. I mean, like I said, surprising for sure, but obviously uh, Leander still enjoys it. Absolutely. He's, he's a joy to watch. So let's uh, get your views. Uh, the U.S. Open draw will be announced today, uh, but let's get your views on the doubles action. Who, uh, who appears in your shortlist uh, of the men's doubles, you know, who can go all the way? Uh, of course, draw has a lot to do with it, but what are some of the teams that stand out according to you if you've been paying attention? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have the teams that have done well over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, Continent Pierce, really good team. Kubat, Mello. They made the finals of the U.S. Open last year, um, lost to Jack Sock and Mike Bryan. Um, you'd have to like their chances. Obviously, the Bryans, you know, probably not playing to the level that they're accustomed to, but I think that they're close. And obviously, it's just a great story to have Bob back playing after the hip surgery. And, you know, they're, they're a different team when they get to the U.S. Open with the— um, with the U.S. crowd behind them, a place that they're very comfortable playing. So, you know, they would have a really good opportunity. Um, I'm not sure who Jack Sock is playing doubles with. Um, he's obviously in the conversation because he, he brings a lot to the doubles court. Um, so I think he would be a factor. Um, you know, but I, I think that, you know, Roger Takao, someone, the team that plays very well on the hard courts, they're very dangerous. I don't think that there's, you know, necessarily Cabal Farah obviously have established themselves as the team here in 2019. And for them to get over the hurdle and finally win that first Grand Slam at Wimbledon, I think was huge. Um, you know, I, having known that, I think I made three Grand Slam finals before uh, we finally won one. When you finally do get that one, it it takes takes the monkey off the back for sure. So, you know, maybe Cabal Farah can translate that into more another slam this year. Um, so, you know, obviously Nicholas Mahout has played extremely well, no longer playing with Uger Bear because Uger Bear is focusing on the uh, singles a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think uh, one thing about the doubles is it, it's fairly open when you think, you know, I think there's probably seven or eight teams that if they get hot, have a great chance to win it. So um, that makes it very exciting. No, uh, very well said. So let me ask you a very basic question. I've asked this uh, to a couple of doubles players who've been on the podcast. Uh, so when you see pairings like Sitsipas, Kyrgios, which is good for the game, very charismatic, both uh, you know young guys and you know it's good, like singles player when they play doubles. They drew Cabal and Farah two weeks in a row. So if you're a doubles specialist, doubles number one, doubles number two, is it extra pride going against a star-studded singles team or are you just professionally block it out? It's a match to be won and you just move on. No, 100%. <laughs> I mean, I remember the, the days when I played Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, played Federer in the finals of Indian Wells one year. Um, there's no doubt. First of all, you know, you, you respect those guys mightily. You, you want to try to get a win over them. Um, if you didn't have the opportunity to play them in singles, you want to at least say maybe you got a win over them in doubles. Um, you know, uh, plus those guys bring so much to the game. So I think you do. You want to kind of feel good about yourself and and kind of let yourself know that you can play to that level. Even though it's on the doubles court, you're still playing against some extremely talented players. You know, when you mentioned Tsitsipas, Kyrgios, of course they don't have the uh, the reps underneath them that a Cabal Farah does, and, and usually that's what separates those types of matches. Um, you know, generally the singles guys, you know, my estimation and my breakdown of, of the whole singles players, doubles players, is that, you know, 
I think people underestimate the value of reps. You know, when you take a, a team like Cabal Farah that focus on doubles, do double specific drills, know each other, they play off one another. You know, that's ultimately what doubles is. And, you know, the singles guys don't have that benefit because they're, they're playing singles most of the time. They're not practicing double specific things, but they can come up with shots that maybe some of the doubles guys aren't able to. So from a doubles perspective, you have to be aware of that. You have to realize that, whoa, these guys can these guys can raise the level to, you know, uh, kind of a level that maybe you're not used to seeing, um, but maybe they can't do it consistently. And and that's where sometimes I think you see the top doubles players kind of make a difference in those types of matchups. Mm. Well, that's very well said. So let me ask you this. We always talk about in majors, you know, like the guys like Zverev who haven't broken through yet or I'm talking singles, but I'm going to bring doubles in. Uh, Two-week tournaments have different rhythm. You know, it's a grand slam, best of five. So let's talk from a doubles perspective. Uh, all majors at some point has been hit by bad weather, especially Wimbledon and US Open in recent years. There's been uh, a lot of rains and schedule, you know, gets complicated. And doubles, you know, we know doubles is not the main act. Single is, but doubles players... Their schedule is on a different beat, and sometimes we're not even paying attention. We focus on oh, uh, Roddick's in the second round, but you know Federer's half's already moved to the third round. You know singles always take precedence. So how does the doubles team, you know, go through these uh, tough scheduling? And do you have an example where you know uh, you didn't play your first match till very later, or you know you didn't play your second match till because the singles matches were being preferred? Tournament had to catch up to schedule, and what kind of mindset is needed because? Uh, it's a little bit of uncertainty from where I see as far as the double scheduling is. Yeah, I think, I think you have to be really patient. But, you know, I mean, that. I think that's just the way the tour is. I, I don't think there are any doubles players that really uh, try to fight against it per se. I mean, the reality is the game is, you know, the game is pushed by the stars and that's the single stars, right? The The fans are drawn to the game mostly for the single stars and you know, I think the tour's done a good job with the doubles. They they try to promote it as much as they can. And, um, you know, the doubles guys at the top of the game are becoming stars in their own right. And, you know, the prize money is, is elevated quite nicely over the last few years. And seems like it's elevated just since I retired, which I wasn't happy about. But <laughs> that's another that's story. story. But, but, you know, I, I think, think it's, it's like, like you said, said, patience is important because, you know, the singles guys, they have to get the scheduling right. And also now with with the um, addition of having singles players in the draw, you know, sometimes it can make for some tricky scheduling. And, and for sure, the, the doubles um, demands and scheduling requests, they're on the back burner. They're, they're going to be the last to be listened to. And, you know, that's just part of it. I, I think that for the doubles guys, they understand that. And Ultimately, they're trying to get to the latter stages of events because they know, you know, then they get almost equal billing, right? Where you're going to be playing on the stadium, stadium courts, court, you might get, get some TV time, and the schedule's going to be a little bit easier. Hmm, well said. And uh, what's your take on, again, uh, we're jumping topics, but go, again, going back to Nick and Sitsipas, I'm sure it's very encouraging that when we see these leading men play uh, doubles and singles. But for a guy like Kyrgios, you know, who's had so many, you know, well-documented, you know, even accounts by his own admission that he doesn't like to practice. Uh, maybe doubles is good. Uh, is that a sign that, you know, he's more serious about the game? Who knows? But uh, McEnroe, I think it worked very well for him. Uh, do you see with the transition game? It's kind of a loaded question. I'm trying to combine more than few things. You think uh, when top guys start playing more doubles, can that A, make up for practice? B, can they gain 
some some grounder singles court like uh, maybe transition game or maybe the walling skills I think you're 100% on I think both are perfect I love when I see the young guys playing doubles and it it tells me a lot about them Sitsipas for example he's the guy who plays doubles all the time uh you know we're focusing on it with curious but I've seen him in the draw just numerous times um already early in his career and you know I think it's extremely important you think about a guy like Denis Shapovalov who plays a lot of doubles been playing a lot recently with Bopana you know he's a guy that as he continues to get more comfortable moving forward with the transition game that's how he's going to separate himself from the field um so I think it's really important um you know in, in the case of Kyrgios of course I think it's more of a McEnroe thing there where hey anytime you can get him on the court where he's somewhat focused even if it's for doubles as you said, doesn't necessarily like to practice per se. Uh, that's a good thing. And, you know, McEnroe said it himself that he hated practice. So it was a w- way for him to get some extra reps and also enjoy playing with his partner. Um, you know, at the time was Peter Fleming, had a good relationship, allowed him to relax a little bit away from the, the tension and the rigors of the singles court. And I think Nick's probably similar to that. Um, you know, the few times I've seen him play doubles, he has a good time out there. He's relaxed, and obviously he's very dangerous. <laughs> so um, I, I really like to see the young guys playing the doubles. Obviously, you know, they have to schedule accordingly. Um, if they start to go deep in a, in a few uh, singles events consecutively, then, you know, maybe they have to kind of scale it back a little bit. But I love seeing him play in, in the 500 events, the the Masters events. And, you know, slams is always uh, just another – it's just very difficult with the three out of five in singles, how physical the game is, how physically demanding it is, um, the length of some of these matches. Um, you know, that becomes a little bit uh, tougher for the top singles guys. Absolutely. And then let's stay more uh, on Nick. Uh, uh, again, I don't think we can really add uh, – I'm going to stay away from the cliches – uh, anything new to the conversation because he's polarized the tennis universe like no one has in the recent years. Uh, but when former players, they get a lot of heat when they say he's good for the game and people bring his manners and you know some of the things that he does besides the tennis. So when people are saying he's good for the game, that means just like econo- the economics of the game or the health of the game or he's just a different, he's kind of, you know, he's wired differently. So when, I, I, I'm not sure if you've said it, but what's your view on that and where do you sit on that when uh, that conversation sometime uh, is brought to Twitter. Yeah, obviously, you know, I mean, Nate, like you said, Nick is a polarizing figure. You, he, he gets people to talk about him. Um, you know, my take on Nick is that I was fortunate to kind of get to know him a little bit better over the last 12 months, um, having coach Jack Sock, they're good friends. And, you know, he is such a nice guy. He's really a nice kid, which, um, you know, people don't really understand that he's a little bit misunderstood because of his actions sometimes on the court. But, I think what's important for Nick Kyrgios is that, you know, everybody has an opinion as far as what they want Nick to be. I I think it's important for, you know, we just got to let Nick be Nick. And I I think that the fine line is just as long as he's not offensive. Right. And um, he's entertaining. I think in Washington was a prime example. If he could somehow toe that line, right, where we get to see his brilliance, his obscene talent on the court, um, in my estimation, I mean, and this is a, a bold call, but he's top three spot sorter, server of all time. You know, I've got Federer, Sampras, and Kyrgios in that little conversation. Um, so that's just a unique Thanks, skill set. Um, no, but but I, I think that, you know, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, 
he, he, he just, just goes, goes over the line, right? It gets a little bit offensive. Um, and, and that's where, that's where you start to lose the general public, right? When you get a little bit disrespectful and it gets a little crazy. And I, you know, I, I think Nick's not intending to be that way, but once again, it's the same type of thing, you know, as a former player, you just never know how each player processes pressure demands. And yes, would we all love to be Roger Federer and be that cool and calm under pressure? Yes, we all would love to be like that. But, you know, the reality is it's it's not possible. You take even Novak Djokovic, who is phenomenal, one of the toughest mental players of all time in our game. He still has times where, you know, he fights with himself. He has mental battles. Um, you know, he doesn't get disrespectful, per se, that maybe the way that Nick can at times. But it, it's just an example of how, you know, players deal with pressure differently. And, um, you know, I think for Kyrgios, he's, he's great for the game. Um, just not as good when he gets offensive. I think Andy Murray said it very well, who's, you know, a good friend of his on tour and talking about exactly that. He said, listen, what he did in Washington was entertainment. It was interactive with the crowd. That's great to have. Um, but he just went over the line in Cincinnati. You know, that that part is just that's not helpful for the fans. That's not a that's not a good look for tennis. And, um, you know, so I, I think it's a hard balance for Nick. But um, personally, I think he's really good for the game. Yeah, I think that's where I said on too. But yeah, there's uh, the, like you said, there does come the extra, you know, uh, advertisements with Nick, you know, the behavior and uh, yeah. But I think you covered quite a lot there. So let me just ask you: uh, This podcast will be released next week, I think, by Tuesday when the U.S. Open will be on day two. So before we know the draw, are there any guys on the men's side that Mark Knowles thinks you know can? Can, can make some noise. Uh, that means, you know, uh, you can pick the group of uh, team, uh, Sitsipas, Hachinovs, wherever. Are, are there any youngsters? I mean, who, who's on your radar and uh, what factors uh, compile that name to be shared here? Uh, and we want to yeah, discuss beyond big three. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting, obviously, right? I mean, it's hard to go away from the big three. They've been so dominant Um you know, it, it's not just the level of play that they bring, but it's the professionalism. It's it's their it's their march to greatness that continues. That's um, really you know it just separates them from the rest. Um, you know, obviously over the last twelve to eighteen months, we've tried to introduce new names to possibly uh, win slams. You know, m- whether it be Sasha Zverev, um, those type, and you know, unfortunately, Sasha's having a little bit of a tough time, but still a great player. Um, Dominic team has come close and, you know, his a new association with Nicholas Masu seems to be working well, um, played extremely well at the open last year, probably, the, probably the match of the year really against Rafael Nadal. So, um, you know, he hasn't really been as comfortable in hard courts throughout his career, but having won earlier this year in Indian Wells, he's got more confidence. He has the, you know, once again, he has the ability, uh, to win a major, uh, obviously, the, the uh, new popular pick is Daniil Medvedev, who's absolutely been on fire with his unorthodox play. Um, I'm not quite sure he's ready to break through. I'm not ready to jump on that wagon. Um, but he's proved me wrong. I, I, I honestly say when I saw him play last year, I would not have picked him to be uh, five in the world at this time. And that's the beauty of tennis. Um, you know, everybody does it differently. And he's a prime example, a guy who's 6'6", has a lot of power on the serve, moves exceptionally well. I think that's the thing that was overlooked the most is how well he covers the court. And then a very important factor in tennis is he makes his opponents uncomfortable. And, um, you know, that's the key. That's what makes this sport so special 
is that you you know you wouldn't necessarily look at the the way he strikes the ball and the quality of shot to say hey yeah that's a top five player um, you know but he goes about it a different way. Uh, Hatchinoff, obviously a, a lot of weapons, big player. Um, Oje Aliassim, obviously he's a name that's going to be harped upon over the next two weeks at the U.S. Open. You know, I, I think it's a little premature for him to go all the way, but uh, you know, with the right draw, with the right amount of confidence, can play well. Um, uh, you know, one name that I, I think will do very well at the U.S. Open, uh, given the right draw, I think Denis Shapovalov is going to do very well. I know he's struggled a little bit. Um, this year, he just um, started a trial with Mika Yuzny, former number eight player in the world. I think that'll be pretty good. Yuzny was one of those players that used his guile um, as an asset on the court. And I think he could really help Dennis a little bit um, with you know how to construct points, per se. Dennis has an electric arm. He just has so much firepower. Um, I think he's just learning how to construct points a little bit better. Um Let's see. Who am I missing? Um, What's your view on this uh, Hubi Herkaz, the Polish guy? Is uh, have you? I think Herkaz is, is an excellent player. player. A lot, lot of firepower. Been working with Craig Boynton. Boynton. Big serve, big ground strokes. You know, I actually talked to Craig the other day about it, and he said that you know they've just been working a lot on the mentality. Um, you know, and that that's a key thing. I think that's one of the things that the general fan probably can't process or realize about the top three right is there a lot of players out there with the firepower and the ability um to maybe challenge the top three but very few have the mental package ready to you know defeat the top three on a big stage and you know that was one thing that stood out about medvedev against novak in the semifinals in cincinnati was that novak actually played a good match um Medvedev just raised his level. Yeah, he started going for two first serves midway through the second set. And, you know, he stuck to that strategy. He went for it. And uh, one of the few times we've seen anyone kind of below the top three be able to raise their level against the top three playing at a pretty high level and come out on top. Um, you know, maybe that will send some uh, waves through the tour for some of the other players that it's possible. You know, it's... Um, it's still a two out of three set match, which is a lot different than a three out of five set match against the top three. Um, but it could have a it could have a carryover effect for some, some of the other, other players. players. Uh, you didn't mention Sasha Zverev, so I believe uh, you just not buying because he's coming in with no momentum. That. I think, I think there's, there's too, too much, much going, going on off the court for Sasha. And, um, you know, that's what I said. I mean, obviously, he's he's going to win a major. I, I know people are starting to say, oh, he's not going to win a major, which is absolutely – that's blasphemy. I mean, it's crazy that people – but that's what we do, right? We, we, we jump to harsh uh, judgments. You know, everyone's jumping off the train now for Sasha Zverev. Um, that's not the case for me. He's, he's going to be fine. He's just going through – you know, and this is it. This is part of the process. And I think this is also what makes those top three guys so special. Um, you know, obviously, Novak had a little bit of dip in form when he had some issues with the elbow and some off court stuff. But outside of that, with Rafa, Roger, these guys have been consistent for so long. They have, you know, not only the physical ability, as I said, but they have the, men the correct mental approach at every single slam. And, um, you know, for Sasha, he's having a little bit of trouble with the second serve, obviously. Um, he's going to be able to iron that out. He's six foot six, has a nice motion, um, and he's lacking a bit of confidence. You know, there's a couple of things he can change game-wise, which, you know, he and his team, they, they know what to do there. But ultimately, like I said, it, it comes down to the athlete. And 
the reason I wouldn't put Sasha in there right now is I just don't think he has the, the, the belief right now. And um, that's the key. You know, you have to believe in yourself before anyone else. Sure. Let's uh, wrap this conversation up by bringing some of your coaching experience. And uh, you had a chance to work with uh, Milos Raonic. Just talk about that partnership. And second question combined here, where, where is Milos's game right now uh, in your view? I don't know how much have, have you seen of him. Just talk about Raonic. Yeah, obviously, I, I really enjoyed working with Milos. Um, yeah, I didn't get to work with him very long. Uh, it was a very short association. We basically were only together for Wimbledon um, two years ago, and that was you know, a very nice run for him. He beat Sasha Zverev in the round of 16s and you know, lost to Roger Federer in the quarterfinals uh, in a really good match. Roger played extremely well. And then, you know, unfortunately, Milos was injured. Um, we didn't get to work together anymore after that Um you know, he had one injury after another. Um, we've kept in touch a lot. Um, he trains a lot in the Bahamas, so we see each other quite often. Um, you know, I, I'm always pulling for Milos. He's he's a super guy, a uh, very intelligent guy, and really one of those guys, right, that you feel if you could have taken away all the injuries, you feel like, you know, of course he made the finals of Wimbledon that one year, but you feel like he really would have been challenging for more majors, Um if he could have just stayed, you know, a little, a little bit more healthy. Um, and, you know, that's always hard for a player. And I, I think that's the toughest thing for Milos is that, you know, I think most people have to understand with Milos is it's not like every other player. He, he's got to factor in the health so much um, with scheduling, with way he trains, um, with the way he plays. Um, but, I, you know, I think what's important is Milos is still – I, I think he's still a very dangerous person in slams. He, he possesses one of the biggest serves in the game. He's got a big game. Um, to me, it should be a fairly simple game. You know, he's worked hard on trying to improve the transition game, improve the volleys a little bit, and, you know, realizing that he, he brings a big game to the court. And there's no player out there that wants to play Milos Raonic when, when he's firing on all cylinders. So, um, you know, I, I think that... Um, I think it's also been good for him that Dennis and Ojeda Aliassime have emerged as well. Um, you know, he was carrying the flag on the on the singles court alone on the men's side for Canada, and now it's it's a three pronged attack, and um, I think that's probably exciting for him. Um, so you know, he's another guy at the U.S. Open. You know, with the right draw, um, as long as he's healthy, um, the key thing is health. Um, you know, at the U.S. Uh, sorry, excuse me, at Wimbledon. He had a nice run there and he had a pretty favorable draw. But, you know, once again, he, he was dealing with some health issues that, you know, he, he didn't necessarily let out. But it, once again, it was it was health that was holding him back a little bit there. And um, that's always the key thing for Milos. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark. I think this is uh, quite a, I think, good information for, for the listeners here. And I learned a lot. And uh, I know you are busy with the commentary assignments. So hopefully we'll have you back again on the podcast. This was gold. Uh, much appreciated from everyone on our team. Sounds good. Thanks a lot for having me on. Appreciate it. Welcome to this segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast, sponsored by our friends in Australia at Stats Insider. That is statsinsider.com.au. We're really grateful to Nick Splitter, James Rosewarn, and the whole team at Stats Insider 
for all the great content they put out on the U.S. Open, major tournament tennis, and other sports across the spectrum. Statsinsider.com.au. So this is Matt Zemek with Sake Bali, and uh, you know we have Mark Knowles of Tennis Channel to pr- to talk about various tennis topics, and Sake and I just want to talk about something a little bit off the beaten path, not the same thing that everyone else is talking about. And so, Sake, why don't you get our conversation started today? Sure. Uh, hey, Matt and everyone uh, listening. Hi. Uh, yeah, the second, uh, actually the last major, not second major, I need to wake up. The last major of the year is uh, less than uh, 15 hours away. This is uh, an East Coast time. The first ball is going to be stuck by the time this podcast is released or you are getting your hands onto it. So we want to, with our true form, want to keep it relevant. So one topic me and Matt, I think, have had you know opinions and some of our tennis with an accent team members have also discussed is, is like the timeliness of withdrawals. And uh, on the men's side, uh, Kevin Anderson, no surprise there. And then Milos Raonic, somewhat of a no surprise, but then Milos has had injuries you know, throughout 2019. So these two withdrawals kind of uh, uh, left unseeded players get their seeded slots and uh, Richard Gasquet and Jan Lannistruf could have been seeded. So we are not in the players' position, Matt. Uh, we can't speak for them, but when, say, a Federer or Murray has done it in the past, this kind of has been spoken more, and rightfully so, because the stars draw more attention. So we don't have to have a strong opinion, but this is something you know we do entertain and we do listen and we do read tweets about. So let me just bring your view uh, into this. Uh, I'll give my two cents, but you can drive this later on. Uh, I think players are there you know, with their best interests. Major uh, tournaments are the defining moments of the year. There are a lot of ranking points, even for Raonic, even for an Anderson. And they just enter this uh, with the best intention and they are professionals. They know someone else is going to get the spot. I don't think they have to worry about the imbalance of the draw. uh, But rightfully so. Sometimes these decisions have led to one draw being more lopsided. But both men were not expected to go deep. So maybe the pain of their late withdrawals are not going to be talked about because the first ball is going to be hit regardless, you know, at 11 a.m. without them in the draw. So do you think uh, in this particular scenario, Matt, this impacts the draw or the overall landscape of the men's field? And what's your overall opinion if, say, Raonic was a contender and he withdrew, you know, at the 24th hour? Well, I think the the very fact that Anderson and, and Raonic are so injury plagued, um, it, it's not it was it was not likely to have a major ripple effect on the draw. But in terms of uh, you know addressing the larger point, you know what if it did? And of course, the relevant example is Andy Murray two years ago at the 2017 U.S. Open, uh, staying in the draw, you know through the announcement, and then only after the draw was announced did he then. Um, pull out and and that you know he was the number two seed pulling out uh cost roger Federer the ability to to be the second seed uh which would have put him opposite rafael nadal and Federer got a t- was in nadal's half and he had to play juan martin del potro in the quarterfinals and of course he lost that so you know we'll never know if murray had um pulled out before the draw and Federer had been the number two seed might have gotten a much easier path uh to the final uh, against Rafa that obviously didn't materialize. So obviously a lot of fans remember that. And it, and it's very easy in my mind to criticize the player for, you know, knowing that he's not in especially good shape, but, but waiting until after the draw, waiting, you know, closer until the first day of play to see if he or she 
um, can give it a go. And I just think that, you know, if, if we really care about players and, you know, that's what the discussion about a players union revolves around. That's what a lot of other uh, ATP governance discussions this year, the kinds of uh, cost of living discussions that Vashak Pospisil has raised, other players have raised. You know, if we really are concerned about these kinds of things, we're going to allow the players to have some space and some time to make the decision that they know best. I mean, it really can be the case that on the Thursday before a major, you really aren't sure, and you have to wait until Saturday or early Sunday to make that final call. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that Murray's decision or the way he handled it in 2017 was inappropriate. You know, he wanted to see, he wanted to test it, and then he realized he just couldn't do it. I, I, I hold nothing against him for that. I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I would say that, uh, you know, much as we have the the uh, new policies about um, being competitive in the first round of a major, you know, players, you know, getting into a major tournament draw and then, you know, clearly not having anything to offer. I mean, I, I think we should, you know, applaud players who don't go through with the decision. Uh, you know, they're, they would be cheating the fans if they were really, you know, 40% healthy, 30% healthy, but they insisted on playing, you know, we have, so we have new rules and policies uh, to, uh, refer to that particular scenario. And so, you know, I think that Anderson by not playing, you know, I, so under the, under the rules as they are, if I'm not mistaken, you know, he will get, uh, a measure of compensation. And, and, and if I'm errant in that assumption, we should, you know, be giving, we, the, the sport of tennis should be giving players a small measure of compensation if they, are officially announced in a draw. It obviously means they qualified for it, uh, but then they can't go ahead and play. Um, so just making sure that that remains uh, part of tennis for the long run, uh, you know, that that is really the the responsible way to view this situation in my mind. No, well said. And uh, again, you know, sometimes this conversation is very fan centric, and uh, uh, you are you know seen as a voice you know who covers tennis a lot. Uh, so I just want to put you, uh, you know, on the podium once again. So you think uh, from a perspective of John Leonard Struff and Richard Gasquet, you know, they're the pros here who somewhat got impacted. They could have been seeds, but Gasquet himself has come back, you know, after a bout of injuries, you know, and time off the court. So again, we are not in the player's position, but uh, one would assume that players know the drill, that, you know, they, they are the closest one who would, uh, understand the sentiment of a Raonic or an Anderson uh, to pushing this to the farthest uh, time that they said, okay, maybe their bodies allow them to have a go at it. Uh, so that's the other conversation, which I think, in all fairness, if we're going to make about the Federer del Potro Nadal, uh, you know, conversation, we also have to at least weigh in on, you know, what a Struff or a Gasquet, you know, would figure. Again, very hypothetical. We don't know what they would think, but uh, if you can weigh on that a couple minutes. Yeah, well, here here's the key point about the the lower tier players, uh, you know, whose whose situations change. The fact that tennis has a random draw, or if not if not completely random, at least largely random. In other words, you know, you're not playing uh, a specific seed; you're playing a range of seeds, and or you have a range of possibilities. Uh, the fact that tennis has a a loose draw and not a strictly ordered draw 
uh, that that's relevant. And by a strictly ordered draw, I'm really just talking about NCAA style bracketing, a term that I've mentioned from time to time uh, in discussions of tennis. An NCAA bracket or a strictly seated bracket is where the, the the numbers are fixed in a bracket. So you know, one would play 128. Number the number two seed in the first round would play 127. Three would play 126. On, on and on and on until you'd have number 64 playing number 65. And then in the quarterfinals, it would always be one versus eight and two versus seven and three versus six and four versus five. In the semis, it would always be one versus four, two versus three. So that's a strict seating system. So the fact that we don't have that in tennis, to me, that makes this less of an issue, not more. You know, if we did have a strict seating system and the draw was not random, uh, that would seem to have more implications for a player who got you know, either bumped up or bumped down uh, into a different seating notch. Uh, because in a strict seating system, the value of each specific numerical seed would be greater. You, know, you had this seed, so you get this advantage or disadvantage. So a disruption of that due to a player pullout um, but before the tournament, that it would have more implications. But because this is a random draw, the the pullouts of players before the start of play that just that's really just one more element of randomness in my mind i mean it's not like a player is sitting there with you know with a with a mild injury contemplating whether or not to sabotage this other player's chances i mean that's if not if it's not never the case uh it's certainly very rarely the case i mean it's it, it would be hard to think that that has any degree of regularity within the tennis industry so the fact that tennis draws are random and they're not strictly uh, bound to a seating pattern, uh, then that to me makes this much less of an issue than it otherwise would be. Uh, sure. Uh, and on that note, uh, let's move this conversation further because you and I didn't get to do a preview of uh, the tournament, which you know we've done in the past year or other majors, at least we've weighed in. Uh, by the time the podcast release, uh, the tournament will be in full action. Uh, but what are your expectations of this tournament? Will this give, uh, on both tours, you can pick either, will this give uh, an opportunity you know, for the overall landscape to change in somewhat? What can this major do for certain players? Because ATP is still very top three heavy. And now you know we all realize how much the tour misses Andy Murray or uh, inform Del Potro, or healthy Del Potro or inform Wawrinka because... We're really looking for that next piece of the puzzle who can, uh, you know, consistently be someone who can challenge. So what are your thoughts on some of this uh, or even a topic of a choice? Uh, you know, what can, uh, what this open can deliver? You know, what are you thinking? Well, it's really kind of fascinating because on one hand, the WTA and 99% of the ATP are wide open. You know, it's really kind of fascinating. There's not... There's not an incredible difference between both tours. I mean, there's a significant difference. I hasten to say that, but it's not an extraordinary difference because if you take away the big three, and I know that people will laugh at that and say, well, that's like saying if you took three presidents out of Mount Rushmore, what would you have left? You know, so I, I get it. You know, people will laugh at that. But really, the ATP is just as predictable as the unpredictable as the WTA if you remove the big three. So you know, it's kind of weird that. The big three do limit drastically our expectations of who can win. 
and who can play in the final. That much is true, but it's really kind of counterintuitive that the ATP is just as unpredictable as the WTA, but it's just it applies to the first five rounds of a major. The last two, the semifinals and finals, we pretty much know what's going to happen. So I, I want to make that note in general. So, you know, if you if you do remove the big three, and I think that, you know, it's it's virtually a lock that one of the big three is going to win the U.S. Open, and it's probably going to be Djokovic, and Nadal would be the second choice. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily wide-open tournament, and, you know, that is something which, you know, it should be, I think, a feature and not a bug. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing how the shadow of the big three in those final two rounds of major tournaments, you know, overshadows everything else which happens in men's tennis. So it's, you know, I would I would say that the quality of women's tennis is better than the quality of men's tennis. You get so many more interesting first and second round matches in a WTA major tournament draw than the men. But purely in terms of unpredictability, the two tours stand on very similar ground. And it's just that those final two rounds for men's majors are where you know, a thick layer of uh, deja vu, you know, covers the, the rest of the landscape. So it, I just wanted to point out that particular note about how the, the two tours are in one way different because you have three stoppers on the ATP side, whereas there is no Serena Williams like figure from, you know, through early 2017 before maternity. Um, you know, Serena was that stopper. She was that Djokovic, Nadal, Federer-like figure on the WTA tour. But now there is no stopper. There is no wall on the WTA side. So, you know, that that's really the interesting part about this, that it is, it is a huge field of opportunity for nearly every tennis player on tour uh, until the, the men get to the semifinals of the U.S. Open. So, um you know, any of 20, 25 different women can win this tournament precisely because there is no stopper on the ATP side. And I would be lying, Sakib, uh, if I if I said that I had any real clue about how the women's tournament is going to unfold. I think you've uh, you've stated that in, you know, in our staff picks as well. And you state, uh, you know, compellingly consistent and how you view the field. So again, uh, not part of a plan agenda, but let me throw this question because I'm tempted and this is the opportunity, I guess, in a podcast. So you said, you know, ATP is very unpredictable, removing the big three. And uh, you and I have agreed to somewhat, you know, in podcast leading up from French Open, that Dominic team has clearly established himself as a guy who can play. Of course, he's coming with some sort of virus or flu-like symptoms, but if he's healthy, uh, he has the ability to, you know, stay in best of five, uh, form of the competition and, you know, has made two Roland Garros finals. So let me ask you this question, total fan question, but if the big three decide to just, you know, boycott this tournament and the remaining field stays intact, in their absence, who becomes a favorite and does that change the dynamic of a Zverev or a team or a Hachanov? Does a Kyrgios get more serious? That RBAC, he has a chance because, like you said, the field is going to be just crazy wide open. Uh, what are your thoughts on that kind of madness? If they say, okay, enough is enough, we three are setting out. Now it's going to happen, but because nobody's yeah, going to beat them, sure. so I just want to ask this. You well, know. well, you know, team is the best non-big three player around because he's shown he can beat Djokovic uh, at the French Open. I mean, that's something no one else, uh, you know, outside the big three other than, you know, Vavrinka uh, has shown he can that can be done. And, of course, Vavrinka isn't the same player he was 
two, three years ago. And this obviously the same can be said for Andy Murray. You know, he's kind of he's not really in a in a big four mode right now. He's trying to build himself back to that point. Um, so team is really the best active, you know, in terms of right now, current form, current quality, team is the best non-big three player. I'm so annoyed by this virus. I mean, I, I hope Dominic feels better, but I mean, you know, I'm annoyed as a sports writer because, you know, if he has a virus and he's weak and he loses, it's not a verdict on his tennis. It's a lot like Kiki Bertens at the French Open. You know, I was really ready to see, you know, that was her tournament to make a big push for a first major title. And then she's felled by illness in the second round. So uh, that was heartbreaking. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily call this uh, virus by team, you know, similarly heartbreaking on the same scale, but it's still really disappointing because he certainly was in position as the number four seed, not having to play anyone from the big three until the semifinals. He was certainly in position to make a semifinal run. And when, if team can make a semifinal at a hard court major, you know, that is the next really big step for him in his career. As soon as he does that, then any slight lingering doubts about his presence as a all-surface player or at least a multi-surface player you know he's not going to figure out grass but if he can if he can really step up at the hard court majors that's the next vista for him in his career so i'm really upset that he has the virus obviously the man of the moment outside of the big three at the u.s open is Daniil medvedev given what he did against djokovic given what he did again in cincinnati given the fact that he made the finals of three straight summer hard court tournaments without taking a break that was an eye-opener. And the way he served against Djokovic and David Goffin in Cincinnati, that was an eye-opener. So can he do that in best of five matches? That's an obvious question. I think the other, And the other player you really have to look at, because he's in the uh, half of the draw uh, without Djokovic and Federer, is Roberto Bautista Agu. You know, can he do at, at the U.S. Open on hard courts what he did at Wimbledon? And that would be make a hard court major semifinal. He can do that. I mean, he will very almost certainly be uh, in London for his first ATP finals. So that would be a terrific achievement. Um, so um, with team having the virus, Medvedev and Bautista Agu are clearly the ATP players to watch outside the big three in New York. Yeah, I think uh, that's a, a fitting response because uh, you've, uh, you know, you don't want to see anyone coming compromised health-wise at Dominic Team. We wish him the best because even from a website's point of view, you want to see a legit guy, you know, uh, trying to build his uh, resume. And he did it pretty well last year at the Open and he's played two Rolling Garros finals. And uh, Batista Goose, another guy who's just knocking the door, he could just join the conversation. So on that note, Matt, I think we covered a lot. Tennis will be played in full. And hopefully listeners do enjoy the Mark Knowles edition of this podcast. And uh, any parting words uh, before we are back for our next episode a week from now? Uh, just, just enjoy the complete and total unpredictability at the Women's U.S. Open with so many good matches in the first round. You know, Serena Sharapova, Azarenka Sabalenka, on and on and on. Uh, it's going to be an incredible tournament. Do not expect precise results. Allow yourself to just enjoy the show and the path through the seven rounds of that tournament. It's going to be incredible to watch. On that note, this is Sakib and Matt. Uh, We'll be back with another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Keep listening and keep sharing. Bye for now.